Welcome to the Excel Podcast, conversations with leaders about the big challenges, the exponential challenges facing business and society in the new decade. My name is Graham Brown. I'm on a quest to find out how leaders are meeting the three big challenges facing us today, artificial intelligence, digital transformation, and the Asian century. Subscribe and discover more episodes at www.xlpodcast.org. Hello and welcome to episode two of the XL podcast. I'm talking to Howard Yu, the professor of innovation and also author of Leap. We're addressing a big challenge facing businesses today, which is how do businesses change, keep changing and stay relevant in the 21st century? We're going to discuss case studies of digital transformation. And these aren't the obvious brands, but companies like John Deere and General Motors We'll also discuss why businesses fail. Why did, for example, billion-dollar businesses like Kodak or even Nokia fail? So join me in this conversation with Professor Howard Yu as we share insights on leaders and the stories they tell. My name's Graham Brown. Delighted to be joined by Howard Yu, who happens to be the Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at IMD Business School and author of Leap. Today, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, normally found somewhere in Switzerland or up in the air, flying between assignments. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Well, I've got a lot to learn today, and hopefully you can help us make sense of the world a little bit. You are coming to Singapore next month. You're going to share some insights on innovation and really what it takes to build organizations that innovate, not just today, but tomorrow and over generations as well. Mm. So I want to put it to you first. Who are those companies or organizations that we should look to that you respect in your your day job that you talk about, the case studies that you share? Hey, look at this company. Look at how they've pioneered and innovated, not just in the last couple of years, but 10, 20, 30 years. Surprises. Who do you know? Yeah. Um, in my teaching and research interests, I I get intrigued by companies that truly have long-staying power. And it's not just prosperous for a few years and then flame out or even decades. I always get intrigued by organization can stay for centuries, reinvent itself, not just once or twice, but again and again. So companies such as Novartis, Hmm. uh, uh, pharmaceutical giants, or even tractor company based in Ohio, John Deere, or organizations such as Procter & Gamble, these organizations we're talking about having hundreds of years of life, right? So they not just survive for a mere decade, but they've been around for more than a century. Mm. And in the backdrop that we oftentimes see is company lifespan is actually gotten shorter and shorter. We're truly living in this world of accelerated changes. And so I thought the key lesson learned derived from this long-staying company is ever more important. Yeah, I love that as well. You picked John Deere, the agricultural heavy machinery <laughs> company. And I've heard this a number of times. People have mentioned John Deere. And I mm. mean, they've got, they've got a, a recognizable logo. I think it's the right. yellow logo. And people will be familiar with the green logo, for example. And yet, 
why? You know, they make tractors. Why would right. anybody look at a tractor company and say there's a lesson to be learned there? Totally. I mean, if you think about John Deere as a tractor manufacturer, um, they are really confronted with some low-cost competitors, latecomers, right? Mm. From India to China. In India, you have Mahindra Mahindra, which started off selling low-cost tractor and really eating their lunch. And we have seen the similar dynamic where low-cost or latecomer from Asia disrupt the Western pioneering company who oftentimes invented this category. And if you're looking at the history of John Deere, um, the logo is iconic. They started off back in the 19th century. They weren't even making tractor at the time. They started making implement, the plow, wow. as their first <laughs> <laughs> killer product, yeah. in fact. How about that? And um, even in their DNA, the company in its early founding have this determination that in my book I call leap. They have to leap to the next knowledge discipline. Yeah. They have to leap in order to reinvent who they are. So from making plow, they move into making tractor machine. Essentially, is moving into the business area like Ford and GM, moving away from using animal uh, to drive, right? And and they acquire these companies, and overnight, they reinvent the new businesses. That's the beginning of John Deere hmm. moving into the tractor business. Yeah, let's go into that world a little bit more and explore it, because that's, that's <laughs> fascinating. Leap, what is the mindset behind it? Because let's put that in context as well. You've mentioned Ford and GM, so hmm. maybe we can compare their sort of historical performance of other industries or other companies that haven't had that leap mindset as well. Because you think about Detroit, the motor industry, mm -hmm. the home of automotive in the <laughs> world, obviously Henry yeah. Ford, you know, the pioneering work. And yet, if we sort of go back, what, 30, 40 years, and we look at the East, so in that time, Japan, looking at what J Detroit were doing. And e even, you know, the Japanese sent their senior executives to Detroit with, you know, notebooks and said, right, go and learn what these guys do and do it better. Take that information back to Japan and make it faster and cheaper, innovate faster. Mm. And, you know, the original iterations were pretty low quality products, but within 10, 20 years, they were out competing Ford and General Motors mm -hmm. and, you know, Honda and Toyota had better products out there. So that's the alternative when you don't have what it takes. So I guess the question is, what is it that John Deere had that mean, meant they didn't end up being outcompeted by Mahindra or the thousands of potential Chinese knockoffs that could have done it cheaper and faster? Yeah, you really put the uh, right emphasis around this idea that we can no longer just doing slightly better than your competitors or relying on patent or trade secret or even unique value proposition. Because in the end, there's no blue ocean can stay blue forever. At some point, your trade secret is going to leak. Yeah. Uh, patent would expire. And so this is why you see from automotive industry, to green energy like wind turbine, right, or solar panel. These days is always the latecomer, the knockoff that becomes very, very big. 
you're looking at personal computer industry, for example, right? The early pioneering company, IBM and Compaq, they all lose and they merger and acquisition and consolidate. Today is, of course, Lenovo mm. is the latecomer who becomes the worldwide leader. Now, what makes John Deere special, I thought, in the case study is you look across the history of the company from early days all to contemporary history. It's this relentless effort in trying to acquire new capabilities in order to rewrite the rules of the game of their own sector. So if you think about John Deere, of course, this is a pretty much a farming equipment. Uh, historically, it's all about mechanical engineering, just like automotive sector as well. And to many surprises, uh, to, to many observers' surprise, um, in the early days, around the 40s and the 50s, John Deere basically took the playbook of consumer packaged goods and begins to invest in branding, invest in advertisement, and also consumer research as well. It's almost moving into the category of consumer packaged goods. But noted that their target audience essentially are Midwest individual farmers, right? Mm. So that's a pretty radical bet from a mechanical heavy machine makers at the time. Oh, yeah. No one would even imagine that's possible. So when they launch one of the major uh, product, they launch it in the Neiman's Marcus, a high-end department store, uh, feature with a diamond stud tractor at the time, wow. and at night completed with Texan-style barbecue as a fanfare <laughs> event. This would be unthinkable back yeah. then as a marketing stunt in their target segment group. And if you look fast forward today, of course, everything John Deere's do, essentially taking the playbook of Silicon Valley, like Google and Facebook, building a platform and linking suppliers such as the seeding company, such as Monsanto's and Gender on one side, together with individual farmers on the other side, playing almost like a platform strategy yeah. in their own right. That is um, radical, so this isn't is it? the kind of recurring themes. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, where does that come from? Because what you described, Howard, is how every company wants to be. I mean, deep inside the the, the belly of every bank, every mm. traditional bank in the world, they want to be like that. They have dreams of becoming mm -hmm. like that. Yet the reality is, Monday morning, when the rubber hits the road, something mm -hmm. happens. So what is John Deere doing? How, if I was to look inside, under the hood, of John Deere, where is that coming from? Is it a rule book somewhere? Is it the people they hire? Do they have like a fun office with a slide and a ball pit? What is it that they have? Can you sort of put your finger on it or is it a component of many different parts? It is a component of many different parts. And um, this is where in terms of business school research, we want to be more careful because a success story uh, make great headlines, but the underlying lesson learned might have boundary condition. And which is why in the book, I try to cross triangulate the evidence and the key lesson learned across a spectrum of different industry as well. Mm. Then you can really generalize some key lesson learned. So the executives such as from the banking industry can really draw in the correct analogy 
so that we don't just copy on some kind of best practice out there that may be meaningful to John D alone, but may not be meaningful to a banking sector. But having said that, looking across all industry from pharmaceutical to consumer packaged goods to farming equipment, for example, what I saw over the years is um, it is truly a combination of people having a positional power, such as the board member as well as the CEO, together with the rank and file, people steep in the organization, that they are being empowered to try things out so that the company can really make decision based on real evidence before they commit themselves to a new strategic direction. Mm. What we saw oftentimes is organization would be happy to invest in small-scale project, uh, you know, from design thinking to lean startup methodologies. But when it calls for a different type of capital investment in order to scale these initiatives to become big, then the organization hesitate. Mm. Because rarely these type of initiative can render into positive cash flow analysis in a conventional way. And this is where the budgetary process doesn't really fit into the picture, uh, which is why the role of CEO becomes very, very profound in this moment when the organization need, need to leap going forward. Profound in what sense? Well, I'll give you a concrete example. So when Procter & Gamble in the late 60s, they're about to launch the world's first synthetic detergent. And out of that uh, commitment, essentially, PNG really moved away from just making natural soap, the ivory bar, into the world's first company that launches synthetic detergent. And the number of organic chemists quadrupled overnight. And since then, everything is about technology. It really changed the company's uh, makeup in, a, in, in the core operation. However, in the wake of the launch of the Thai brand, there's almost a compulsive fear inside PNG because they thought this synthetic detergent is going to destroy the natural soap business. Mm. It's going to cannibalize the existing sales of the core product. What happened is the chairman of the board at the time, William Cooper, basically said, now, if anybody is going to destroy our natural soap business, it better be PNG ourselves. Yeah. So the kind of saying is almost similar or identical to Steve Jobs, right, at uh, Apple, who famously said, if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone else would. So the commonality across these organizations I've seen is in order for an organization to leap, we can no longer rely on the traditional budgetary or strategic planning processes. Mm -hmm. It really requires a number of experiments going around, but at some point, it does require the CEO or the top management team to pull the trigger, to move away from an emergent try-and-error strategy into a much more deliberate strategy in order to move the needle. So, so that, that is quite important as a key task that cannot be delegated. Yeah, that's what real leadership is, isn't it? That storytelling almost, isn't it? That this is what we need to become and really nothing more than giving a green light to the organization to do what's necessary and setting the tone. And I wonder when we look at case study evidence from the past and really, um, you know, 
want to sort of drill a bit down into your your sort of learnings because you like you say you've triangulated so many uh boundary conditions and i guess you're you're looking for false positives like this worked in john deere and it worked in png but it may yeah. not work in a bank what is the underlying condition that works in all of these i i want to sort of throw out a, a case study which i find quite interesting and want to hear your thoughts on this is that nokia mm. Very similar mm -hmm. to John Deere is, you know, here's a company for those that don't know so much that started making rubber boots, I think, for for yeah. Finnish farmers. So much like John Deere, origins very sort of agricultural um, products, and yet from mm -hmm. that evolved into a tech company, and, and at one time probably the most known tech company in the the world, right? You know, the yeah. Nokia brand in two thousand and six. Yet it all went wrong. So, I mean, your thoughts on that? It's like they had all that maybe internally, and yet from mm -hmm. 2006 onwards, they lost it all in a heartbeat. And mm -hmm. what went wrong? Why, why could a company that was innovative over generations suddenly not become innovative? And I think this is a challenge that faced Lego at some point in the late 90s as well, mm -hmm. right? So what, what happens in these situations? How can companies who have it all lose it so fast yeah in the case of nokia probably is a series of uh misstep that um, in accumulation it becomes uh the the negative impact becomes almost irreversible so in it is interesting that when steve Jobs launched the very first iphone the head of r d at nokia basically said to himself oh my gosh we have this in our laboratory because wow. Nokia actually in, 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 among the uh, researcher, they have done all these endeavor in trying to come up with a mobile phone essentially can connect to the internet at a time and also without a keyboard. But at Nokia, the environment is in such a way that launching such a product would be unthinkable. And I think there's something to say about the importance of diversity as well. Now, if an organization, you can get someone like Steve Jobs, of course, it's great, but there are not a lot of Steve Jobs no. going around in the corporate world. Um, but what we know is if an organization are basically staffed by people who go to the same university, live in the same city, things like them, retire in the same company, then it's very, very hard for an organization to challenge its dominant logic. Mm. And that doesn't bode well when disruption occur at a quickened pace. And so one would want to look at the CEO backdrop background. Is he an inside outsider or he's always been running the mainstream business and rising to the very top? That for him or her is almost impossible to see an alternative. The makeup of the board members as well is the entire board are staffed by people who looks exactly like the CEO as well, from gender diversity to nationality to industry background as well. And then we can also need to look at the workforce as well. Uh, you can proxy by a number of things such as nationality, industry background again, as well as gender. The nice thing about these days is to research on board membership is very easy. You click on LinkedIn, you basically see everything. So um, mm. one research that I have been doing is to exactly trying to predict 
the readiness for the future among these major players. Because every bank, for example, would talk about you know blockchain, robo advisory, or some kind of mobile payment scheme. What we want to understand is which banks, retail bank, whatnot, are more ready for that future. Are they just talking about the strategy just to pacify investors, or there are tangible initiatives you can measure? As well as the CEO background, as well as the board composition, together with the PE ratio of the company, that can be a gauge of how ready they are to confront with that changing future. So I think going back to your original question of Nokia, I think in the early days they are probably too conservative. The board is too homogenous. Everyone think about the same way. So all the great invention gets stuck in the laboratory, just like Kodak and Polaroid, by the yeah. way. And in a later stage, as they're running out of time, the option running out, then they're truly on a burning platform. Mm. Yes, there's a sense of urgency, but anything that they miscalculate, there is no way to reverse anymore because time is running out. So Jeff Bezos have this saying, right? If the company don't embrace failure, then they will eventually getting into this desperate position. The last thing they could do is to fall. A hail mary bat like American football. Yeah. You try the best, hope for the best, yeah. and that's what Nokia get get themselves get stuck. So the whole idea of using burning platform is misguided. I think. Yeah, it was too late. The uh, too the late. damage was done a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So you talk about diversity, and I mean everybody's talking about diversity now, and it's interesting that mm-hmm. the narrative about diversity very much is focused. I think for a lot of organisations doing it because it it's. A, maybe good for recruitment. B, it helps with CSR. It looks good on the annual, you know, prospectus, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like a bit of PR. Yet there's something more fundamental here, isn't there? Mm -hmm. You know, innovation is a function of diversity. And really what you're saying is that, you know, if you have these homogenous cultures, they're actually not very good at making decisions like long-term. And there's been a lot of research about this. I mean, if we go back to the book, James Suroki's Wisdom of the Crowds, that that experiment where they got people to count jelly beans in the country fair. And I think, you know, you know, if, if there was a lots of people that looked like Howard or me doing it in one team (laughs) versus another team of mixed backgrounds, maybe you and me together, and maybe some other people of different backgrounds, somehow we would arrive at a better decision because it, you know, it's like a jury, isn't it? That they've got those different backgrounds and therefore maybe that wisdom is more effective than one guy who's kind of imposing his idea and the blind spots, I guess, on the collective, right? And I suppose, you know, now where you are in, in Palo Alto, the heart of Silicon Valley, San Francisco, mm. in a way, I don't know if this is, is this the case, but, you know, if, if San Francisco, if Silicon Valley success is in software, and software requires that sort of homo- not homogenous, sorry, that heterogeneous. I, many, many different Correct. ideas coming in. Silicon Silicon mm. Valley had that. You had the Chinese, you had the the Irish, and the Jews, and the immigrants, and everybody coming mm-hmm. there from everywhere else, right? You know, yeah. it, it, even Stephen Jobs was a second generation immigrant, I think, I believe, right? How important that was so. for innovation. You know, if I if I'm a CEO of a, a bank here in Singapore coming to SMF. Wondering, okay, I get it now. What can I do? What can I do about this to make my organization more innovative? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of talk about gender or national diversity. 
and we see the value of that. In a small nation, it may be harder to do in terms of nationality, for example. But any organization can think about how can I bring other talent coming from an unconventional background, right? So that's something anyone can do. And in fact, we've seen organization experiencing payback as well. Um, that you, uh, for example, let's take GM. Um, it has been plagued by years of bankruptcy and you know, kind of languishing for long. And today, if you're looking at GM, they have invested in cruise automation, which is this AI lab out in Silicon Valley, uh, doing autonomous driving. But it's not just that. They were able to open up uh, cruise automation for third party to invest, such as SoftBank, for BMW and Daimler, Mercedes, all these German companies that would be unthinkable because these are all family businesses. And then you see cruise automation partner went out to partner with Honda, the arch rival to launch pizza delivery in Japan as well. Mm. So everything they do is almost using the Silicon Valley playbook. And you saw investors just see the logic behind, right, for their share price and the PE ratio. And you're looking at who's in charge now, Mary Barra, first time a female executive outside the industry. So it's not so much just about gender. But it is around how can we enable the management team to think beyond the dominant logic of your own sector. Because the innovation, let's take fintech, will never start it off from the industry itself. It would always start from the fringe. So mm. if we are not tapping into the brain power from the fringe, then we are putting ourselves in a very precarious position. Now, I have heard about exactly what members saying, well, we don't want to use quota, and we really felt like they are not the right fit. And that's exactly the point, because a homogenous team would always feel productive. But the key word here is feeling productive, mm. because you all understand each other. The communication would be faster, but it doesn't mean that we're going to make the right decision. <laughs> the reason that uh, a diverse team feels such a pain to work with is because you need to understand each other's perspective. But that is exactly the point. By understanding others' perspective from another industry, then we can learn and borrow the industry logic from another sector to reinvent ourselves. So that's the, that's the rational thought. We know what is right. And that's the emotional barrier that we don't want to do it because it is painful. So... I'm recruiting at the moment, and I'm sure anybody who's listening or comes to SMF at some point is dealing with recruiting talent. Now, that could Mm -hmm. be putting together a board. It could be putting together a team or hiring your next Mm -hmm. CEO. And you said something really interesting that made me think and made me reflect. And you said that putting together a team that may look or feel like you may feel productive And Mm -hmm. that's really interesting because as a business owner, I'm always conscious of, I have blind spots and feeling productive to me sounds like a blind spot. It sounds like I'm creating my own echo chamber. I'm creating something, at least the emperor's new clothes, right? And the the old sort of fable. So what does that mean? What what, what do you mean by it feels productive? You know, because... If I'm recruiting somebody and I've got this team together and they feel productive, maybe we are productive. Or are you saying 
we just feel it, but we aren't really productive because actually the fact that we're being challenged by different opinions and having to kind of work it out together forces us to get to the moment of truth maybe. But I'm sort of, the counter argument would be, there's a lot of time wasted trying to get everybody to work together here. What's the reality here? Yeah. So to work with a diverse team, it does require certain um, norm setting before you start to perform. Um, because a diverse team is always almost a bimodal uh, performance curve, if you will. It's not a bell curve. Either you have a very high-performing uh, you know, diverse team, or the performance is actually lower than a homogenous team on average. That's the reality. Because for a diverse team to function well, people need to trust each other. There needs to be uh, having a higher level of psychological safety that people feel is safe to share their doubt, to express their ignorance on certain area of knowledge because everybody are not having the same set of knowledge. This is why the team is diverse. But in order to make it work, then, then, then there has to be the right environment. So it can backfire if it's not enough of a norm setting uh, being done up front. Mm. Um, but for a large company, there is also a way of, you know, sort of uh, accelerate the progress. Because when people think about a diverse perspective, they tend to think about let's look for outsiders, right? Uh, let's bring someone from outside. That help over the long run. But I think the immediate help would be when a business leader is assembling a team they could look for what I call the inside outsider. People who are not working on the mainstream business, they're sort of on the fringe. So for a hardware company, there's usually a service department, for example, who's always sort of the, you know, the second child business for the organization, mm. wasn't very attractive. <laughs> and and most executives would try to avoid those businesses, right? Yeah. Because they see as a dead end for their career. Yeah. What you want as a business leader is to recruit those rabble from those fringe businesses because they've seen, excuse my term, how shit happened yeah. outside the safe comfort zone. And, and they would harbor a very different thought usually. So these inside outsider are great because they kind of know your company norm and culture, what is acceptable, how far the envelope can be pushed. But at the same time, they are not indoctrinated to the dominant logic of the organization. And um, this is, in fact, how Microsoft reinvent itself, right? Because the CEO, today's CEO, is, in fact, he's been running these fringe businesses before he becomes a CEO, uh, Mr. Nutella. So, so there is certain wisdom and there are ample research to support the most effective CEO in succession plan, in fact, usually are the inside outsider mm. for that reason. So it's, it's those individuals who understand the business but aren't indoctrinated in it, in it and yet, yeah. and, and maybe they have more insight into customer pain, like you talk about, the, the shit that happens on a daily basis on the <laughs> front line, field sales, customer service, mm -hmm. where... In many ways, you, you can't approach with any of, you know, dominant mindset. You just have to be empathic and learn. 
what, what's right. wrong? What's going on? Why is this broken? Why is this grandma bringing back our iPad to the store and it's broken? <laughs> I have to understand and learn that. Not not like you're wrong, I'm right. And yet, you know, I, it's, it's fascinating because I, I, I saw the training manual from uh, Apple's genius crew and, and the genius right. crew are those people sort of- Fascinating. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like the- you know, the champions of good customer service in the Apple stores mm. who approach you. And, and they have this training manual. And I don't know if you've seen it, Howard, but it's sort of been circulated online. And it has the word empathy, mm -hmm. empathy in it. Yeah. I think that somebody's gone through it and, you know, like red circled all this the references to empathy. And it's in like this training manual like 30 times. And mm -hmm. yet, so in a way, I wonder if these insider outsiders have it that they empathize more with what's broken. And, and ultimately, I mean, if you look at the Sequoia pitch deck, their template pitch deck for any startup that wants to raise funds from Sequoia Capital, you know, the world's probably most successful VC fund, number one slide, what's the problem? You know, don't tell yeah. me about who the team is and how good you are or what you've done. Mm -hmm. What are you trying to fix first? So do these insider outsiders have some kind of, insight into what the problem is that others don't have I and mean, how do they sort of deal with that i think because they are a step away from the mainstream business by definition they view stuff with a slightly more impartial lens or skeptical eyes right mm. they are the one who would see well how come my customer are not using our product more than we hope for or how come I find, you know, there is a crave for this new product offering, but, you know, our company never pay attention to. Um, and, and so it's from that sort of ongoing frustration of what doesn't work, despite evidence to suggest otherwise, when you give them a chance, they would try to, you know, if not overturn, but would challenge some of the way of working inside the organization. And again, we are talking about company that try to reinvent itself over the course of, you know, half a century or so. You don't do it every single day. But at some point in time, organization do need to reinvent itself. And mm. at those critical juncture, then having these divine or, you know, outside insider becomes very, very critical. Yeah. I know you're a fan of Jeff Bezos. And you mentioned him already today, and I know you're going to talk about him in your presentation at SMF. And I think, oh, well, until recently, he's was probably the most underrated CEO of our generation. And mm. no, obviously now he, he's he's what the world's richest man, or maybe not after his wife's cleaned him out, but he still <laughs> has a lot of cash. And yet, mm. I think he's achieved a lot, and he he has so he's quite strong principled, I think. And based on what you said as well about starting with the problem and, you know, working with that and building around that rather than, you know, build it first and they will come. You know, Amazon itself, possibly the world's biggest startup. You know, I want to put it out there that for those people thinking, oh, this is all very well what Howard's talking about for some small, sexy fintech startup with, you know, team of 10 people. Yet we're talking here now a trillion dollar company, effectively. What what did Amazon do? Where what are they doing right in a business which effectively is low margin, easily, you know, beset by copycats? Um, mm -hmm. 
how have they managed to continue to grow and what is it that they do? I mean, looking in their company on a day-to-day basis, is there anything unique to Amazon that they do that other large um, organizations aren't doing? Yeah. I think if you put uh, Amazon side by side with other big tech giant, if you will, like Facebook and Google and IBM and and Apple, um, what marks the difference of Amazon is um, they're constant reinventing new businesses along the way. So they start off selling books and CD and they could easily get stuck there, right, as a single purpose app. But they didn't. They go into apparel and then they start off with, you know, going into Kindle, building this electronic library, almost uh, taking the iTunes playbook in their own right. And then they build up server for their own use and flip that open and become the Amazon Web Services, which is a B2B setting. And then go after buying whole food and going to the brick and mortar store. And then when they stream video, they build a studio as well, providing proprietary content and win Grammy award. So somehow, unlike Facebook or Google to a large extent, majority of the earning or revenue is still at, is still click ads that drive most of the revenue. What you saw at Amazon is they are able to branch out into different revenue stream along the way. And if you look at Apple, for example, yes, they have services, but all the services inherently still tie to the one device versus Amazon is able to really branch out to different businesses that does not necessarily link with one another. Mm. And they are able to continue to branch out to different area and arena and create new eco space. And that to me is quite remarkable because not a lot of companies are able to to, to be able to branch out to new businesses require different, not just skill set, but business logic as well. If you think of, for a moment, video streaming is a subscription services, yeah. uh, Amazon Web Services, B2B, and you know the e-commerce is you know, e-commerce. And meanwhile, they don't pay dividend. Every time they expand, they, they plow back their earning mm. and, and to reinvent itself in pushing into R&D and other areas as well. So, so that makes Amazon quite an interesting company to look at. Yeah, when I think of Amazon, and uh, it, I mean, it's fascinating hearing your, your breakdown of them and all the different things that they do. They, they sound in many ways like some of the companies that are now emerging from China that you have mm. this sort of difference. You're in the heart of the valley today. And in Silicon Valley, there is that narrative of very mission-focused companies, if you like. Facebook being a good yep. example that you mentioned. Very good at one thing. Uber's an mm-hmm. example as well. Very, very good at ride-sharing. Yeah, if you come to Asia, we've got a different thing mm-hmm. going on, which is almost like market-focused, which is... yeah here's the customer, we'll do whatever it takes to give them whatever they want. And okay, mm-hmm. we started doing bike sharing for you, but now we're providing video because we also know that you want that. We've got your payment details. We have your profile. Now we're going to supply all these different services. So this is like this market focused, uh, you know, emerging form here in, in Asia, which is very much like Amazon. But, you know, you look at companies like Meichuan or Tencent, Alibaba, mm-hmm. they behave like that all the time. And that creates an interesting dynamic here in Asia, doesn't it? Because you get this sort of asymmetric competition where 
now your competitor isn't the other bank. Now your competitor is this guy who was once delivering pizza, but now yeah. has set up a payment app. That That is now a real flip, isn't it? I mean, if I'm an Asian brand who is really good in my sector, I'm now, you know, I spent all my years monitoring the next guy and making sure that I was mm -hmm. slightly ahead and all the sort of the brand positioning statements and marking share. But suddenly, bam, in comes this new person who like, doesn't look like me, doesn't play by my rules, and doesn't think like me. That's now a real concern, isn't it? What can we talk about that? In you know, especially with the people that are coming to SMF, thinking, okay, fine, like I've got this, and now you're throwing in something else. This is completely random to them. <laughs> yeah, um, and and we see that in particularly strong, uh, particular uh, with a stronger force in Asia, because I I think. So for 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 whatever historic reason, um, the entrepreneur in Silicon Valley still still in many ways still see industry boundary as defined. So you are a social media company, then this is the boundary you are in, and 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 you can invent and optimize your box as much as you like. But in Asia, what we see is this entrepreneur basically don't see industry boundary as given. Uh, I am delivering food and all of a sudden I get all these payment records. So let's think about, you know, payment system all of a sudden. And, and, and I think it's also because in China in particularly, uh, the infrastructure in the past is simply lacking, right? Mm. So everything is up for grasp for reinvention or invent, start from scratch. And this is where we see one element. The entrepreneur don't feel as bounded as in the Western world. And the second part is uh, it, it really create a challenge for industry incumbent because startup and, and early businesses, um, investor who inv invested in them don't require high profitability. Now, mm -hmm. legacy company always are demanded by investor of high profitability. And, and that becomes an asymmetric competition as a result because then these uh, upstart can essentially subsidize a lot of services in order to try out the market dynamic to see which one consumer would like, yeah. and then they scale. And, and this, this creates tremendous amount of pressure for incumbent. When for incumbent company, everything they try, they need to fund from their own pocket, and inevitably at the finance committee, they're going to expect high return. And so that doesn't help for experimentation. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting how companies deal with that and what the, the successful case studies are. You know, how do you fight off these, these challenger brands and how do you yeah. balance that? Because it's a balancing act, isn't it? Like they could have cash flows. They're plowing in from their cash cow business and mm -hmm. just running their food delivery business at a loss. And you're just a food delivery guy, but it, it's not, it's not a done deal, is it? There are ways. And, and I guess this is what we're going to learn from your presentation at SMF is that, you know, nothing, like you say, everything is up for grabs. There is no done deal here. Just because these guys are coming from the outside doesn't mean you're going to lose. Like we go back to John Deere, start at the beginning, like they're winning and, you know, they're doing it not by, you know, like necessarily the same methods, but they're playing to their strengths and they're just constantly challenging what they do. So I, I'm really looking forward to your presentation at SMF, Howard. I feel that Thank you. I'm going to learn a lot and 
I know a lot of people are going to have questions as well. So hopefully you're going to stick around at the uh, the coffee break and make yourself open to questions. And I'm sure people are going to want to dig a bit deeper. And your book as well, I suppose, is a good place to start, Leap, um, if they want to find out a bit more about your thoughts and the sort of the architecture behind some of the stories we talked about today. But Howard, um, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's been um, a bit of a challenge logistically to find us both on a workable time zone. You're out there in Silicon Valley. I'm here in Singapore, but I know you're going to be here next month in Singapore. Looking forward to that. Thanks for um, joining the podcast today and sharing your insights. Really enjoyed it. And I feel like I've got a lot to learn when you come here to Singapore. Thank you so much for having me here. Great talking to you. Fantastic. That is Howard Yu, everybody, Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at IMD Business School, author of Leap. Check him out at SMF in September. Um, also, check out your website as well. I mean, people can find you at howardyou.org. It's a good place to start if they want to learn about the man behind the, the voice. I think that's good to find some insights on Howard Yu. Howard, thank you so much for today. Thank you. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.